Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, our Messiah, the one who knew no sin, but came to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We thank you for him as we begin our service to offer up our praise to you, Lord. We pray that you be with us, guide us, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, it's good to be here. Beautiful day out there. The sun's shining. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Eric Pendleberry. Um, I've been going here for a little while, but anybody that's new, that's who I am. And I guess I have the privilege this morning of getting called out of the bullpen, so to speak, to bring the message this morning. So, as you know, we're in Romans chapter 6. We've been there all year. And my verses for the day are going to be Romans 6, 20 through 23, since Matt stole verse 19 from me last week. So, anyways, if you want to open your Bibles up to Romans 6, starting in verse 20, says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You pray with me once more. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you from, for, for bringing us out of death and sin into eternal life in your son. Lord, I pray that you would guide me this morning, that your spirit would work in me and everyone here, Lord, that they would come to you, they would draw near to you, and in all this, that you would be glorified greatly. We ask this and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. The wages of sin is death. The free gift is eternal life. So that, I'm thinking wages. The first thing we think of is your job, right? So I want us all to imagine real quick that you are out looking for your job. Uh, say you're looking on the Internet or you're walking down the street, whatever, and you see a help wanted sign, and you go over and you read it, and it reads like this. Help wanted, now hiring, the unrighteous. We have openings for the following. Gossips, slanderers, murderers, God-haters, boasters, idolaters, liars, swindlers, thieves, and drunkards. We also have openings for the sexually immoral. And if you feel unqualified for any of these positions, we always have many openings for hypocrites. All candidates must be full of envy, strife, deceit, selfish ambition, and of course pride, the kind that elevates yourself above everyone else. The salary of spiritual death is paid moment by moment. At retirement, you will receive physical death with a guaranteed everlasting pension consisting of eternal death. Followers of Christ need not apply. Now, as crazy as this sounds, this employer has employed the multitudes down through the years. Ever since Adam signed on the dotted line, he's been building quite a business. He was once my employer, and he still tries to rehire me every day. That is, until I remind him that I belong to Christ. He's my new employer. And he's the only one who he could never hire. I guess he just was unqualified for the job. Now, this illustration shows us the reality of what sin is accomplishing for us, namely death. The wages of sin in our lives takes the form of all those above-listed qualities, and that's not an exhausted list. These qualities and job descriptions, if you will, they should serve us as warning signs. As Paul wrote in Romans 1.32, we know that these things deserve death. We know it. So why do so many continue down that path? We're going to try to unpack that this morning. So Paul wants us to consider here in this passage, he says, what, uh, what freedom 
did you have apart from Christ? And, and what did that gain for you? Where, and where is it leading? And then he wants us to consider what our freedom in Christ is and what that is producing in our lives and reminds us where it is leading. So there's three things that I want to look at in this text specifically this morning. Freedom, fruit, and the final cause. Freedom. You know, we all have some idea of what that is, but we're going to look at what the world says it is and what it really is. Because very often words are manipulated, their meanings are changed, and this word is one that has been abused in just such a way. Furthermore, freedom always has an object. Freedom from one thing means attachment or slavery to another. Second, fruit, that which is produced in our lives. Uh, We say a lot around here, at least I've heard it a lot, uh, the root produces the fruit. Jesus said, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. This goes along well with a a sound principle that we're we're probably all aware of, whether we've heard it said like this or not, but action follows being. Uh, The boys down here showed us last week that, you know, with Matt's examples, that the dog barks and so so forth. You know, things things flow out of things. You know, uh, what you are, what comes out of you shows what you are. So... That brings us to the third thing, which is the final cause. Now, I probably could have used the more familiar term, goal or end, but I wanted to use the three F's to keep up with Matt's three S's from last week. You know. Um, anyways, the final cause does it does bring something out that we all we all recognize, but we don't always think this way. So that's one reason why I chose as well. Anyways, the final cause is one of Aristotle's four causes. You have the efficient, the formal, the material, and the final cause. Now, it is tied up with the word end that is found in our text this morning. Now, end is a translation of the Greek word telos, which means an end, principle, aim, purpose, goal. Um, Now, everything has a final cause or a goal, and that final cause determines what things tend toward or are inclined to. It's a, it's a goal-directedness. So uh, to give an illustration, we'll look at soccer, where literally the goal or final cause is to score a goal. So the ball will be tending toward or directed toward the goal. In a sense, the goal is drawing the ball, it, the, the goal is drawing the ball to itself through the player's free actions. Furthermore, if there were no goal in soccer, if there were no final cause, then there is no soccer. There must be a final cause, and it sets the agenda, if you will. So, it should be apparent why these things are important. Um, And for the Christian, they're very important. The secular world has its own idea of freedom, fruit, and final causes. And we must be careful to not let those ideas creep into our bloodstream or Quite possibly, we need to get them out of our bloodstream. They have no place in Christ, which is where we are. So, as a Christian, if we have the wrong idea of freedom, it will lead to lawlessness and sin for us and also for those around us, Christian and non-Christian. Ideas have consequences. So, if we adopt the world's idea of fruit, we'll begin to long only for earthly treasures and begin to value status and ease, etc., which will produce envy, strife, etc., or simply, and really, no fruit at all. And the big one, if we adopt the wrong final cause or goal or purpose in our lives, then we're probably not in Christ or we need to reevaluate our lives. In short, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. On the other hand, if we have the right final cause, the other two will fall into place. Not magically, perhaps somewhat mysteriously. We've got to remember, we have a mystical union with Christ. We don't always see everything that's happening. As Matt pointed out in his opening, he's working, and sometimes we don't see how that's happening. But he is. So there is some mystery to this. We know that Christ has accomplished salvation for us, for us, but he's also working in us and through us to bring our salvation to fruition. 
But this does not preclude the intellectual or practical life. So we must have our minds transformed to have our lives transformed. And since, as Paul will show us, we all have a final cause or an end, and we all have an idea of freedom, whether or not we're conscious of it, we are going to have a goal, and we have some idea of freedom, whether we can espouse that and explain that to you. We all have something that we're tending towards, and we all have some idea of what it means to be free. And these ideas have consequences. So we want to get those right. We want to take those thoughts captive to Christ. So in Romans, we're nearing the end of chapter 6. And chapter 6 is the part of the book that moves into sanctification. That is the process by which God is removing the power of sin in our lives. For the Christian, his walk begins with justification. One places their trust in Christ and what he has done for them alone to save them from the penalty of their sin. And then sanctification is the rest of the Christian life. Faith is still the principle. We must believe that God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We must believe God is removing the power of sin in our lives, and this requires obedience and work as well, though. We must remember James's warning, faith without works is dead. As Luther said, we're saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. It is often hard. That's the reality of it. We learn well through hard experiences, though. That's true in nearly everything, and our Christian walk is no different. <clears throat> also, just as our justification required hearing the gospel and the reading the gospel, sanctification is based on this as well. We begin to find the simple gospel message has far-reaching implications in our lives, perhaps way more than we ever realized when we first believed. Perhaps we knew we wouldn't have believed. <laughs> Our knowledge of and our living lives in accordance with the gospel is the key to our sanctification. To be sanctified, we must know what we already have in Christ and then live our lives accordingly. So, in chapter 6, Paul answers two questions that both begin with, what then? They both consist of basically saying, what then? Just go on sinning. Our salvation is based on grace. Paul says, no, no, may it never be. Why, what reason does he give us why it shouldn't be? He says, well, you're a dead slave. Well, that's, that sounds great. I, I want to be a Christian. Sign me up for that. Let's, let's be dead slaves. Now, those two words have a very negative connotation. While alive and free, their opposites sound very positive. However, as Paul will show us throughout the chapter, the words gain their true meaning in the context of what they refer to. Furthermore, being dead to one thing is to be able to be alive to another, and being a slave to one thing is to be free from another. So you see, Paul knows that complete neutrality is impossible. Our modern society does not understand this, and this brings us to the first F, freedom. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, these famous words, I'm sure you guys are familiar with, that were enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, they set the course for our country and led to the most prosperous and free country in all the world. It's at the very heart of our country. Liberty, or freedom to pursue happiness, what, what does that look like? What, what does it mean? Specifically for us this morning, what is freedom or liberty? Now, before we answer that question, we need to look at what, what Paul explains in chapter 5. He says that all humanity was plunged into sin when Adam sinned. He was our representative, and therefore when he sinned, all sinned. And we all ratify that first sin in our own lives. Now, many reject this biblical teaching of original sin, and I like how uh, G.K. Chesterton responds to those who want to deny original sin. He says something like this, certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is really the only thing that can be proven. Look around. It's easy to see sin, and just because it's common does not mean it's okay. It's not okay because it happens a lot. That just shows our sinfulness. And we can also look within ourselves and see the proof for original sin. 
even those alive in Christ still see the remnants of the old man. Chesterton, always clear, once again helps us. In responding to a newspaper editorial that asked the question, what is wrong with the world? He replied simply, I am. Now you can't fix the problem until it's correctly diagnosed. And this is what Paul is teaching. There's not a neutral person born. Everyone is born, as Augustine put it, with a propensity to sin and a necessity to die. We're bent towards evil. That's what's wrong with the world. Sin and its end. Death, spiritual, relational, physical, and ultimately eternal. We are, as Paul says, free from righteousness, certainly, but slaves to sin. Freedom from righteousness. Is that what's at the heart of our country's founding? Is that what's meant by freedom in our founding documents? Freedom to do whatever your heart desires? Is that true freedom? Now I'm going to enter into the uh, Q&A section here, do a little trivia. Who was the most quoted person by our founding fathers? Does anybody know? John Locke. And does anybody know who John Locke quoted the most? These are tough, I know. (laughs) The Apostle Paul. He quoted Paul more than anybody. So, certainly the idea of liberty being freedom from righteousness can't be what was meant in the Declaration. It would stand to reason that the idea of freedom would be somewhat similar to Paul's, being highly influential to Locke, who was influential to Jefferson and the founders of our country. Paul does not paint a pretty picture of what freedom from righteousness leads to, namely death. Death just doesn't fit well with uh, life, liberty, and happiness. So that can't be what was meant in the original writing. So we have a Supreme Court in this country, and its job is, as you know, to interpret the Constitution. Um, So we would hope they'd have some idea of what it meant originally and what this country was founded on. Now, I know that we hold these truths to be self-evidence that is in the Declaration of Independence and not the Constitution, but it does set the tone for our country and so should help guide the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution. Well, our former Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, who was long considered to be the moderate judge on the court, the voice of reason, he defines freedom or liberty this way, quote, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. In other words, end quote there. In other words, everyone is their own little God. Now, don't take this quote in isolation or in the context of a false secular worldview. You need to take this in the context of the real world, the world that has been plunged into sin since Adam, the world that is full of dead fallen people who are born with a propensity to sin and a necessity to die. Those fallen people, us fallen people, we have the right to define our own concept of existence, of meaning, of the mystery of human life. These comments are either blasphemous or mad or more likely both. And sadly, his quote fits well with our modern idea. Our mantra is that We are individuals. We control our destiny, conquering all kinds of tyranny along the way. We are slaves to no one, crashing through the barriers society has set up around us. We have so much freedom that we can be whatever and whoever we want. This is our universe, and it's up to us to use our great freedom to create our own reality in which we can finally be truly happy. This is the prevailing attitude of modern popular society and which, like all societies, fancies itself very original. But in fact, this idea is as old as the garden. Instead of trusting and obeying their creator, Adam and Eve chose to have freedom on their own terms. But I'm not going to go back that far. Instead, I'm just going to go back to the olden days of the 1900s. Some of you may remember those even. Um, Now, our modern society's idea of absolute freedom can be attributed to many philosophers, shifts in thinking and values, Furthermore, the church at large and its failure to combat bad ideology and disciple its members 
all played a role in our current cultural climate. But I want to look quickly at the atheist philosopher, John Paul Sartre, because his view of freedom is virtually identical to that which was just described. But the conclusions he draws are rather interesting and different. All right, so I'm going to give you a quick sketch of, of Sartre's descent into atheism. He was raised as a believer in his own words, quote, I was taught the gospel and catechism without being given the means for believing. I'll end the quote real quick here. Uh, I just want to say that that's sadly the case for too many children. Instead of being taught why to believe, they're simply told to believe. But that's a topic for another day. Don't get me started. Um, back to John Paul. He slowly cast away his belief in God, but in explaining his atheism, he shared a couple of interesting stories. He writes of an incident as a young child, quote, Only once did I have the feeling that he existed. I had been playing with the matches and burned a small rug. I was in the process of covering up my crime when suddenly God saw me. I felt his gaze inside my head and on my hand. I flew into a rage against so crude an indiscretion. I blasphemed. He never looked at me again. End quote. Then at the age of 12, he wants to be sure about this, that, that God is gone. Uh, so he attempted to think of God, but he could not. So the matter is settled. If I can't think of him, he must not exist. Foolish and prideful heart. But it does seem it took a little more work to shake God altogether. John Paul writes, Never have I had the slightest temptation to bring him back to life, but the other one remained, the invisible one, the Holy Ghost. I had all the more, di more difficulty getting rid of him in that he had installed himself at the back of my head. I collared the Holy Ghost in the cellar and threw him out. Atheism is a cruel and long-range affair. I think I've carried it through. I see clearly. I've lost my illusions. End quote. Finally, John Paul has freedom. The exact freedom that Paul writes about in verse 20. Free in regard to righteousness. He was free from the sting of God's gaze that John Paul had experienced as a convicted child trying to cover up the evidence of his disobedience. This freedom he gained, it comes about according to the pattern found in Romans. Surprise, surprise, huh? Romans 2.15 says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. John Paul's thoughts accused him when he was covering up his crime of playing with matches. God was revealing himself to him in that moment. But Sartre blasphemed God instead. The fact that he blasphemed him shows he knew he existed. Just as Paul says in Romans 1, 19 through 21, for what can, be no, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. He's shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. God has revealed himself in nature through what has been made. If there's a creation, there must be a creator. And he's also revealed himself through the law written on the heart. We know right and wrong. We can't avoid it. These are, how, these are the ways that God reveals himself in the natural world. It's what we call natural theology or general revelation. But he has also revealed himself through his word in the scripture and the word himself, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is what we call special revelation. But notice that John Paul wants to think God into existence. And if he can't, then God, eh, he must not be. He wants a God on his own terms, or perhaps more accurately, he wants to be God. Instead of recognizing that God brought him into being, Sartre thinks he is the de determiner of what is real. Look at Romans one twenty one again. Just how foolish it is. I'm going to think God into existence. I to determine what is real. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's exactly what happened to Sartre. Futile thinking and darkened hearts. 
They're the results of being free in regard to righteousness and the source of all righteousness, God himself. Now, I started out with the, the mantra here that we have in our modern culture. We are free. We are individuals who control our own destiny, conquering all kinds of tyranny along the way, slaves to no one or nothing, crashing through the barriers society has set up around us. We have so much freedom that we can be whatever and whoever we want. This is our universe. It's up to us to use our great freedom to create our own reality in which we can finally be truly happy. <sighs> That's a mouthful. <laughs> now, as I said, John Paul has a concept, of free, a concept of freedom much like is prevalent in our culture today. Thus, like our culture, he rejected that there was any objective morality or right or wrong. So he says, just like we do, do your own thing. You do you. It's all about you, right? Complete antinomianism. Freedom from all laws. Except for the law that you do you. Yeah. In fact, Sartre goes as far to say that the very essence, the nature of humans is absolute freedom. But what this absolute freedom entails and where it leads is where Sartre and our modern notion part ways. He thought these things through much more than we do. We just go along with them because we don't think about it. Our modern culture thinks this absolute freedom is the source to true happiness. On the contrary, John Paul sees it as the source of anguish. According to Sartre, the individual is condemned to freedom. Sartre might say something along the lines of, we have so much freedom that we can be whatever and whoever we want. This is our universe and it's up to us to use our great freedom to create our own reality in which we can never be truly happy. So what Sartre in the modern secular world is calling freedom is quite simply, according to Paul, sin. Freedom from righteousness is sin. Just as freedom from sin is righteousness. They are opposites. But we're so trained by the evil around us that we miss this redefining of terms. Freedom is a good word. So the word that is used to justify evil behavior will be freedom. This happens all the time. Take the word love. Love now means affirmation. If I love you, I must affirm everything that you do. You know, just like we do with our kids when they're little and stupid. We let them do whatever they want. You want to go out and play on the street? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, because we, we love them so much. I don't think so. Now, to further my point about the misuse and misdefinition of words, I'm sure many of you found Sartre's statement that freedom is the source of anguish it's disturbing but strange. Also, the statement that the individual is condemned to freedom also sounds rather counterintuitive because we don't condemn people to good things usually. Um, and if I had just said these out of the blue, you, you would have really thought they would sound strange. But let's just change one word. Let's get the word, the, white, the right word in place here. Sin in place of freedom. So, freedom is the source of anguish becomes sin is the source of anguish. Does that sound better? Does that make more sense? See, you can't change reality with your words. You can't. And the other one. And the individual is condemned to freedom becomes the individual is condemned to sin. Now, that sounds a little bit off, but consider Romans 1.28. God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. He gives them over to it. A punishment for dishonoring and denying God is a depraved mind, which leads to sinning, doing what ought not to be done. So the sinner is, in a way, condemned to keep sinning. A vicious cycle. Now, one more time with my mantra for our modern cultural idea of freedom. I promise this is the last time I'll say it, I think. <laughs> we have so much freedom that we can be whatever and whoever we want. This is our universe. It's up to us to use our great freedom to create our own reality in which we can finally be truly happy. Instead, what that really should read is, what that's really saying is this. We are so enslaved to sin that our depraved minds think that we can be whatever and whoever we want we think this is our universe and so can change reality to fit our sinful behaviors, achieving happiness. 
absolutely impossible. We must be freed from this way of thinking about freedom. It needs repented of as much as any sin, perhaps more, because it plants the seeds of a multitude of sins that grow up to destroy us and lead to death. We must walk in true freedom, which is freedom from sin and slaves to righteousness. Freedom to do the good. That's freedom. Our natural state apart from Christ is slavery to sin. And only Christ can truly set you free. It's by no other means. Just consider the one example of Jesus, his encounter with the Pharisees in John chapter 8. The Pharisees seem to think that because they're Abraham's physical descendants, that they're not slaves. They're not slaves to sin. You know, Abraham, he's our great, great, great granddaddy. You know, we're good. But Jesus tells them in John 8, 34 through 36, Very truly, truly, I tell you, everyone, everybody who sins, which is everyone, is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family. But a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you want to be truly free? Call on the name of the Lord Jesus and he will make you free indeed. The son is the one that sets you free. No other. True freedom is found only in Christ. Now I want to just move to the second, second F I have here, the fruit. So, starting back in verse 21. What fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Paul asked the question, Hey, how was it going for you when you were free? When you thought you were free, but you were a slave to sin. Paul has called a lot of people out here showing their so-called freedom was in fact slavery. And now he's asking them to recall the benefits or the fruit that it produced. The proof is in the pudding. And since their eyes have been opened up, they're now ashamed of what they used to do. What they used to love, they now are ashamed of. And we can't talk about fruit without going to Galatians 5, right? So I'm going to read from there. First of all, chapter 5 begins with... uh, (laughs) Mark's trying to help me out over here, I guess. (laughs) Hey, if I go long today, we'll blame it on this, all right. (laughs) Anyways, Galatians chapter 5 starts with these words, For freedom Christ has set us free. Just wanted to throw that out there. We're going we're to actually start in verse 19, 519 uh, in Galatians. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, en- divisions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So, Paul lays out the works of the flesh leading towards death and the fruits of the Spirit, which lead to sanctification and eternal life. Now, Paul uses the word works of the flesh and the word fruit of the Spirit. Why not fruit of the flesh? In Romans 6.21... Paul uses fruit. He says, uh, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? Well, I think the reason he's using fruit there is because he's asking the question rhetorically. There is no fruit. Dead trees, dead people can't bear fruit. That's the point that he's making in Galatians. And the things that they're now ashamed of, which in Romans is very likely the things they list in Galatians. Anger, dissension, division, all these things. They will never produce spiritual fruit. They lead to death and are simultaneously the product of spiritually dead people. 
Notice there's a similar contrast in verse 23. It says in, in 623, Romans, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in this section, Paul is comparing sin and righteousness. So one would expect the concluding verse to be balanced and be read something like this. For the wages of sin is death, but the wages of righteousness is eternal life. That's how most people see it anyway. That's our natural way of looking at it, by the way. But, I mean, it does. It makes good sense to us. Good work deserves a good wage. And don't we all know non-believers who live very moral lives, who have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, characterize their life? And perhaps we see all those qualities in ourselves. So, hey, you might need Jesus to free you from your sin and produce fruit, but I've already got the fruit. Don't need him, you know. Hey, if you want Jesus, that's fine. You do you. That's good to each their own. Remember our cultural mantra. I think I'll just let Jesus uh, speak to you here. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God... I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off, he would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now this parable shows why it is received as a gift. We don't merit it. We can't. The humbled sinner sees this. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came looking to rescue them. He did not come to walk around and, and marvel at our greatness. You know, he didn't come here and say, well, gee, I, I thought I came here to die for sinners, but you guys are good. We're good here. Ah, I guess I'll just uh, hang out with you for a while. False alarm, false alarm. No. He did not come to praise us for our righteous acts. He didn't come to pass out rewards. Let's consider Jesus' teaching in Luke seventeen seven, just a few verses earlier before the parable of the, fa- the Pharisee. And the tax collector, starting in verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare my supper, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterwards, then you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, even if if one were to obey all of God's law, something I would doubt very highly, they have only done what they were supposed to do. You're not owed anything special. This goes for us as Christians as well. We serve God humbly, not to put Him in our debt, as if that were possible, but we serve God out of love and gratitude for what we have already received trusting in his promises, knowing that anything we receive is out of his grace. It's purely by his grace. Now, I don't know about anybody here, but I want the gift. I want what God gives freely because of his goodness, not what I've earned. You can keep the paycheck. Give me the gift. And part of that gift is the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. We don't produce it ourselves. As Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so proved me my disciples. 
Abide in me. Apart, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't, you'll be thrown away like a branch into the fire. Who talks like that? Have you ever said that to somebody? Have you ever heard somebody say that? Abide in me, or you'll be thrown into the fire. Apart from me, you can do nothing. <laughs> Jesus was a radical individual. Take note of what he, how, what he says. When you read, just, just think. Imagine somebody saying this to you, but then watching them die like they said they would, and then be resurrected. Amazing. I'm, truly amazing. So, but the same passage, you can also uh, yank verses out of context. And, you know, verse 8 is one of those that says, uh, you know, by, by this Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So you can take that in isolation a little bit, maybe, if you really want to. Uh, and, you can, and you can make it sound like you must bear fruit and then you can become a d- disciple. So once again, if you just remember our simple root and fruit analogy, uh, you'll avoid this confusion You can't have the fruit without the root. If you abide in Christ, you will produce fruit. The fruit is evidence that you are connected to the root or the vine. He doesn't ask you to produce all this fruit and then bring it to him in a big basket and then reward you. No, he's going to grow it out of you. You trust him for it. You connect to him, and he works in and through you. Mysteriously, perhaps at times, yes. Now, the fruit metaphor, it's everywhere in Scripture, and I could probably have just done a sermon on fruit. There's so much to it, but uh, real quick, Jesus uses the fruit metaphor elsewhere in Matthew uh, 12:33. He says, "A tree is known by its fruit." And then in Matthew 17 or 7:17, excuse me, he says that you will know them by their fruit. So, so once again, we see it's the evidence of salvation and discipleship, both evidence for you and for those around you, and it's good. The fruit of the Spirit's great. It's contagious. It's kind of like the first fruits of the kingdom of God bursting forth in our lives. So when we see these fruits in non-believers, we see them exhibiting these characteristics. That, that's great. I mean, that's good. We like that. But uh, they're kind of sought for their own sake as ends in themselves. You know, we look somebody who just wants to be the best person they can. And while that's honorable, uh, that's not how it is for the Christian. The fruits that we see in our lives, they are gifts from God that point back to the gift giver. You know, they're pointing beyond themselves to God. So we don't, want to, we don't see them as ends in themselves. We, they, they should direct us to God to glorify Him and to thank Him. It's kind of sad, really. You know, we want people to try and act well and live moral lives. I mean, that's kind of like you've only done what you were supposed to. That's just what you're supposed to do. But if you make that your end, good behavior, that's my end, that's, that's all there is to it, you're just not aiming high enough. God has so much more for you than just for you to be morally upright, as important as that is. He's created us for so much more. He's created us for himself, for life eternal. But, all right. So we, we see the fruit, that's the evidence of salvation. But we also don't want to become nonchalant about it either. Eh, hey, if it happens, if I become holy, if I'm sanctified, eh, whatever. No, that's God's will for your life. That's one of the few things in the Bible that is actually explicitly stated, I believe it's in First Thessalonians, that that is his will for your life to be sanctified. So, remember, Jesus said, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He did not say, abide in me and do nothing. Hebrews 11.6 And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We must take our sanctification and fruit bearing seriously. As John Owen said, we must be killing sin or it will be killing you. Paul also tells us to work out our salvation and that we were saved to do good works. Furthermore, we are to present ourselves as slaves to righteousness. And Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth. Be salt and light. Let your light shine. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Furthermore, the fact that Jesus says his disciples will be known by their fruit means 
people will see you becoming holy and righteous. Now, I know that's very scary, very scary, the horror of that, you know. We might be seen as holy or different. I think sometimes as Christians, we are so afraid to be seen as holy or righteous because the idea of self-righteousness or a holier-than-thou attitude has swallowed up the true notion of righteousness and holiness. We're so afraid of being seen as self-righteous that we never become righteous. When in fact, righteousness is a primary goal of the Christian life, a goal that we should not be ashamed to pursue eagerly. Now, we don't want to be like the Pharisees parading around, you know, making a show of our righteousness, obviously. But we do want to stand for truth. What is right and be willing to be seen as different. Holiness or sanctified means to be set apart. So this would seem to require being different in some sense. I would say it's in the sense of not going along with wickedness to fit in. Not being afraid to be ostracized or looked at as different because you don't go along with whatever your friends are doing or the culture is telling you should, you should do. You might have to feel uncomfortable sometimes. Sorry, part of the deal. Jesus told you to count the cost. Furthermore, the command to be holy tells us that God knows that the world we live in will have much wickedness. Requiring the Christian to not be part of the world, to be set apart. If we're to be set apart, we're going to be set apart from something. It's going to be on holiness. So if you're set apart, that means, hey, guess what? world's going to be on holy. No great big news flash here, folks. It is getting worse. I, I agree in many ways. But it has always been opposed to the things of God. Remember, plunged into sin at Adam. Now, now the last section I have here on fruits... I, almost didn't write this in here. I just, this is something I just kind of wanted to, to share a little bit with you guys, and maybe you'll think I'm, this is weird, I don't know. But I just, uh, I'll just want to read this section to you. Um, and the fruits that they're graciously given, and perhaps slowly, but more and more, they become apparent in our lives. Um, but remember the fruit of the Spirit, there's some of these things, you know, like, like goodness. I'll just use that for my example. Have you ever had a, a moment where something like that, something just seemed just so good. Even if just for a fleeting second, it just seemed to be on full display, either in something you've seen somebody do or something that you did or just in a time in prayer. You just have this overwhelming joy at the goodness of whatever it is. Um, now, they, they go away. It doesn't last. And I think sometimes we're tempted to think, ah, that's just pie in the sky, you know. Uh, the, the, this wasn't real. That's not the real world. On the contrary, I, th I think those are the most real moments. They're glimpses into the eternal. Glimpses of the kingdom. The glimpses the enemy and the old man, they want you to forget quickly. They want you to think that only the mundane and the vile is real. But don't forget, it is coming. Make no mistake, the eternal is coming. The kingdom is coming. Those moments are real. Cherish them. And that brings me to my last point here, and that is on the, the final cause. So as I just said, the kingdom is coming. And there is a sense, this is throughout the New Testament, um, we talk about this occasionally, the, the kingdom is coming, and in a sense, it is already here. And I think one way we can see that it is already here is as the final cause. So if we remember, a final cause is a goal or a purpose, an end, a telos. It sets the agenda. The great medieval philosopher theologian Thomas Aquinas called the final cause the cause of causes. It determines all the other causes. Now I know this language might sound strange to us. It's not used very often anymore, sadly. But it captures an undeniable aspect of reality. Remember, our soccer example from the beginning, the goal of soccer is to score a goal. I get it, Jonas. There's other defensive players. I can get all that stuff. <laughs> and their main job is just to protect and all that. But the main goal is to score a goal. That is the final cause, to score a goal. Therefore, it explains why the team is kicking the ball towards the goal. 
it is in a sense causing the ball to be kicked in a certain direction and through certain strategies. It's drawing the ball towards it. The final cause is also built into the nature of things. It is the nature of soccer to kick the ball into the goal. To score a goal is to fulfill the nature of soccer. And to not score a goal is to fail to fulfill the nature of soccer. And it frustrates the end or the goal, the final cause. So again, final causes are built into the nature of things. It, it is there. Whether we want to pretend it's not, we want to just act like everything's just bouncing around with no purpose. That's just simply not the way the world is. That's how we talk about it sometimes and how naturalism explains the world. But it's there. So certain things, this means that since it's there, certain things are good and they help to reach the goal of fulfilling the nature of things. I'll give you one more quick example, and this is of a natural thing. just might help us a little bit with understanding this in our own lives as humans. I'm going to borrow an example from one of my favorite authors, Edward Fazer. Here's a quote. This is good. A squirrel who likes to scamper up trees and gather nuts for the winter, or whatever, is going to be a more perfect approximation of the squirrel nature than one which, through habitation or genetic defect, prefers to eat toothpaste spread on rich crackers and lay out spread eagled on the freeway. End quote. If you thought you'd never hear that in church, huh? <laughs> but... This Colgate-addicted squirrel is not fulfilling his nature, but is frustrating the final cause of his squirrelness. He's going against his nature. Let's look at our text from this morning. Verse 21. What fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end, the final cause of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, final cause, eternal life. There are two ends, both out of the Greek word telos, goal-directedness. One is death, one is eternal life. Two very different ends or final causes. Now remember, the final cause sets the agenda and is the cause of causes. Romans 5.21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where death is the end or the final cause, sin will reign. The agenda is set. And this is the course the old man and Adam will follow. Now, I hate to call death a goal, but that is what the spiritually dead person is aiming towards, whether they realize it or not. Death is drawing those who belong to it nearer through every sin. That is the nature of sin. But, thanks be to God, where eternal life is the end, grace reigns through righteousness. The agenda is set, and the agenda is sanctification. God is removing the power of sin, a process we participate in. And as he draws us nearer, as we walk nearer to him, we get closer and closer to meeting the goal, seeing the goal. And we can begin to enjoy this in this life as he draws us as our cause. He's causing us to come to him because he's our new goal. When he chose us and when we believed in him, we got a new agenda and he will see it to completion. Now, the completion of this journey which is really just the beginning. It won't occur until we go to be with the Lord or he returns to be with us. But this is the course the new man in Christ will follow. Remember, I said, another thing I said earlier, action follows being. In Christ, we are a new creation, a new nature that has the final cause of eternal life built into it. A new being will have new actions. So we have Paul in chapter 6. He's emphasizing this fact. We have a new master. We're free from sin. We died to it. We're no longer obligated to it. It doesn't set the agenda for us anymore. So for us to continue to live in, to sin, live in sin is to be like the toothpaste-addicted squirrel. We're not fulfilling our nature. In fact, we're frustrating our final cause, eternal life. But thanks be to God, our end 
It's not dependent on us, but on God himself. That is, if you have crossed the line from death to life, as Jesus says in John 5.24. Notice, once again, from our text, our end is a gift. Our final cause is a gift. And as the cause of causes, all the glory goes to God. He's causing it all. Not against our freedom, but with our freedom. We have the privilege of living in our new freedom and our new life in the here and now in true freedom with the hope, the true hope of the life to come. Where we will not only be free from the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin. You ever think about that? No sin? At all? We can't. Imagine if nobody ever, just, just imagine if we took away one sin, just lying. If nobody ever lied in the history of the world, this would be a lot better place. But there's multitudes of other sins that would still be there. Now imagine all those going, the difference that one sin would make, and then we're going to get rid of all of it. I'm pretty excited about that myself. Now death, yeah, that, that sets the agenda for us in Adam. But that is not, and that was not, our true original final cause or goal. As Paul writes, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin came in through Adam. God did not create sin. Sin corrupted our nature, bringing spiritual death. But this does not alter the fact that the ultimate end of humanity remained the same. Our ultimate end of eternal life is still the ultimate end for humanity, even if it requires being born again, being brought from death to life, or dying to sin and being alive in Christ. Thus, different from the rest of creation in many ways, our true end is not something that we can achieve. The squirrel can kind of achieve his own end of picking up nuts and that, you know. There's probably more to a squirrel than what I realize God only knows, but our true end is not something that we can achieve. It's much more than that. But it's something that we must receive. A supernatural gift. Something that is above our natural powers. That if we'll turn to Christ... He'll give to us. That highest and true final cause, eternal life, Jesus basically says this directly in John 14, 3. This is eternal life, Jesus speaking here. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ. People ask, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose? Jesus tells us it's not a mystery that we need to figure out or determine for ourselves like we think we're, we're going to do now. We're just going to figure it ourselves. No, he said it. It is to know God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to know him and to love him with all our mind, soul, and strength. In short, it's simply to commune with and worship our creator, which that those words don't do justice to what it actually is. It's eternal. We're finite. We're not eternal. It's, it's beyond what we can imagine. But we can get glimpses, perhaps. So, it's imperative to know this. We want people to know what their final end is, what their final cause is, what their goal in life really is. It's not what you determine. You can make certain goals in your life, and that's great and fine. But they, none of them can be your ultimate. None of them. Notice how frustrated you get when you can't figure out the cause of something, you know. If you can't figure out why the mower won't start or why you do the things that you do, the evil things, doesn't that frustrate you sometimes? It does because we want to know why. And we're constantly searching for causes. God has made us this way. Furthermore, back to my mower quick analogy here, the fact that we need to fix the mower shows that we know the final cause of the mower, which is to mow the yard that's about knee-high now. So that's why we fix it, because we know it has a final cause. And when it comes to knowing why we do the things we do, the evil things, we want to know why. And the Scripture tells us why. 
because we're captive to death. We're broken. And it's imperative that we know this and make it known. We have to know we are broken in order to be fixed. Just as we fix the mower because it is to be used to cut the grass, which is what a good mower does, that's its nature. We need to be fixed so that we can fulfill our nature. We can't fix ourselves. Much like the mower can't fix itself. Now we get to participate in our own restoration as God awakens us and gives us the Spirit. But I want us to imagine waking up in the next life. We talk about being frustrated by, never, by not meeting your goals or when things don't go right, that kind of a thing. Just sticking with the frustration here. Wake up in the next life realizing that you'll never, ever meet your ultimate good. Realizing that you have frustrated your nature your entire life and you will continue to do so for eternity. It is no wonder Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But it does not have to be this way. Look to Christ. And when you do, God will fix us. He fixes us to seek Him, to love Him, to glorify Him. And when we do, we will, not maybe, but when we seek Him, when we love Him, when we glorify Him, we will grow in righteousness because that is what truly fulfills our nature. It is our ultimate good, and God will bring it to completion. Nate, you can come on up. <clears throat> so, we went from freedom to fruit to final cause. True freedom is found in Christ. True fruit is produced in Christ, and our true final cause is Christ, who is Lord, who is God. If you remember early on, I said that if we get our final cause right, the other two, freedom and fruit, will fall into place. So as we see, Christ is the heart of everything. Therefore, we must be diligent in keeping him there and keeping harmful ideas of freedom and fruit at bay. This is the task of the Christian. As Jude says, we must contend for the faith that was once entrusted to God's, once for all, entrusted to God's holy people. So, as Christians, we're no longer officially employed by sin. But if we don't take our sanctification seriously, we can still be contributing to sin's growth throughout the world. And that harms us, that harms our fellow believers, and that harms our unbelieving friends and families as well. What we, do think, what we think and do matters. It matters more now because we are following Christ. We're as ambassadors now. We're tasked with the message of reconciliation. God is making his appeal through us. So as Christians, we must keep our eyes on Christ, on the triune God, who is himself our eternal life. He sets the agenda. Now, if we would all take this seriously, if just perhaps we, as a congregation, take this seriously, wow, I mean, imagine the transformation, individual Familial, communal, perhaps even revival. You know, Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And that's us. We're the church. That's pretty amazing. Now, gates, that's a defensive position. We always think that hell is coming towards us and we've got to stop. No, it's the other way around. Hell has the gates and the church is the battering ram. But with that in mind, before we get too pumped up about the battering ram, we need to remember, as Paul taught us, the weapons that we fight with are not of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So, bad ideas about what freedom is, we demolish them. Bad ideas about how to live, demolish them. Bad ideas about what our final cause is, 
demolish them. The people that hold these false and bad ideas, we love them. How do we do this? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 25 and 26. And this is a passage that I remember Pat emphasizing. And, and it's great to emphasize and, and we need to continue to do so. It says, Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So if you're here today and you're captive to the power of the devil, of sin and death, call on the name of the Lord. Jesus died to free you from that, to free you from the power of sin and death and Satan himself. It's all been defeated. Sin and death was nailed to the cross. And when Christ rose again, he showed his defeat over all of that. It's all defeated. It has no chance. It's all officially done. We're just waiting for the finality of it now. And we get to, to in one sense, participate in this throughout our lives. So, call on the name of the Lord. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Believe that to be true. Know that to be true. And you'll be set free from the penalty, power, and ultimately the very presence of sin and death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we've had today to get into your word, to learn from it, to grow in it, and to reach out to others with it, Lord, so they would be rescued from sin and death. Rescue them from their false freedom that they think that they have and that we all one time thought we had and that we may still have Lord but you promised to free us from all of that Lord and it's all because of you you set the agenda for our lives Lord and we have the privilege of walking in true freedom and fulfilling that goal and reaching our final cause and that's you and we love you we thank you and glorify you pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.